A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to a special Advent 2023 edition of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Conlon. Hello! We're counting down to Christmas over 12 days of mini episodes culminating in our Three Ravens Christmas special on Christmas Day itself mm-hmm. using the 12 days of Christmas song as a very loose justification for <laughs> waffling on about interesting historical and folkloric tidbits roughly related to Yuletide. And here we are, day one. Oh! So Martin, we're starting with the 12th day, which you've got down as 12 Lords are leaping. I do. But... That's not the version I learned when I was little, so what's going on there? Well, the 12 Days of Christmas song dates from at the very latest the 18th century, so the 1700s, appearing in several anthologies and miscellanies, and these have different versions, and they've kind of changed over time as well. Well, that's fun. So, which things changed over the years? Well, I mean, we're going off the earliest recorded version, which was in a miscellany called Mirth Without Mischief, and there's every reason to think the song might be even older. As for things that have changed, there are definitely versions where things are reordered, but there's also some pretty weird ones. Such as? Well, in some versions, one day has bulls a-roaring, some have hares a-running. Oh, these animal inclusions are cute. I like it. Well, not always. In one, it's bears a-baiting, and I don't think anyone should be bear-baiting, least of all at Christmas. (laughs) And then there's other variations, such as bells a-ringing, ships a-saying, That also crops up. And instead of a partridge in a pear tree, in some versions, it's part of a juniper tree, which I don't like half as much. That feels like a mishearing. (laughs) I like a partridge anyway. They are chubby little birds and cheerful. Mm. Besides, the song is not actually about the days leading up to Christmas, but rather the 12 days 
after Christmas. Yeah, exactly right. Those 12 days after Christmas work their way up to Twelfth Night, aka Epiphany Eve, which takes place in English tradition on the 5th of January. As the lyrics we're talking about for today, Lords are leaping. We obviously know what to leap means, to jump. Yep. But is there a particular reason the lords in this song are a-leaping? Or has a sudden urge simply grasped the full dozen of them? <laughs> My fellow lords, I must leap with immediate effect as one! <laughs> well, there are two different kinds of leaping the song might be referring to. One is the jumpy kind, and it's very likely that this relates to what was known in Europe as the dancing plague. What? Yep, the dancing plague. Or it could also be about lords leaping up the ranks of the social order, normally through rapid promotion. <laughs> so which should we talk about first? Lords leaping up the social classes or lords dancing themselves right to the edge of oblivion? Well, I'm very, very interested to hear about the dancing plague. Mm-hmm. But let's start in a modest and courtly fashion by talking about lords leaping up the social ranks. Very well. So the first thing we should probably probably say is that to be a lord in England has historically meant that you are of socially superior rank. An idea we don't really have anymore, Mm. or at least most people don't really hold to. Yes, I mean, we still do have the House of Lords in the Westminster Parliament, which is a non-elected house of our political system, with lords appointed by members of the various political parties while in power to sort of help scrutinise legislation. So point out the problems we have with laws our governments are trying to pass. But we no longer have a hereditary peerage in the UK. So people can't just be born lords who sit in the Houses of Parliament. Tony Blair did away with that one. And it seems quite likely that if Keir Starmer's Labour Party win the next election, then the whole House of Lords will be abolished and replaced with an elected house. We will wait and see on that one. But without getting stuck in the weeds, in England's feudal past, so we're talking basically since records began, there has been a system of peerage in place, by which I mean a way whereby you can become a lord. Of course, the lord on high in English tradition is God. Who obviously loves a boogie <laughs> and God is constantly shaking it like a Polaroid picture. Yeah, or at yeah. least we presume so. Oh, oh, I certainly imagine so. But uh, yes, the next most lordly after that was the king or queen. Then below them, members of the landed gentry. So people who hold tenancies of chunks of land as specified by the monarch. So the king closest to God in the English system. He's the highest lord. And then you have various, and in order, dukes, marquesses or marquises, counts, and lastly, earls. So basically, to be a lord in English history, you need to be given by royal patronage a title. Mm -hmm. And with that title usually comes a piece of land over which you act as your own kind of sovereign ruler. In theory, yes. But in the long past, one surefire way to claim a chunk of land for yourself was simply to claim it by force. And then unless the monarch and their allies wanted to go to war with you, you could kind of just hold on to it so it was yours so you could become a lord by the sword or Mm -hmm. by your martial prowess (laughs) yes definitely and this idea of being good at fighting earning you a lordship was something that became increasingly common during the medieval era when rather than having knights and soldiers simply claiming land by force monarchs wisely decided to give lords parcels of land and say right that's 
Yours now, so no more chopping people up, please, Henry. Not to say that always worked. Uh, as we've talked about on the podcast many times, lots of county lines have changed over the years through violent overthrow, although not for a few centuries now. Indeed. But to keep their lords sweet, monarchs started doing a very clever thing. Clever for them, a bit tricky for the rest of society, especially women, by saying, uh, this land isn't just yours, it's tied to you and your family by blood. By the laws of primogeniture, i.e. the law of the firstborn son, when you, your lordship, when you die, your son will inherit your estates, and if you don't have a son, then it'll go to the next eldest male in the bloodline, aka the new head of the family. And that wasn't always plain sailing, was it? Oh, no. Lots of families torn apart by infighting, murder, attempts to outmuscle each other and so on. Yep, lots of brothers and uncles shuffled off into monasteries on pain of death and so on. So lords could leap up the social classes through war. Yeah, it was for the longest time one of the most common ways of earning honours, being good at fighting. And this kind of fighting wasn't always simply hand-to-hand or mounted combat. It could be through acts of diplomacy, so negotiating ways around conflict. You could also buy them, so if you're a very clever businessman, you could buy honours. And, of course, through showing martial skill in other kinds of exhibition other than just literal wars. Yeah, we've spoken about chivalry quite a bit on the podcast before, but during the 12th and 13th centuries, following the Carolingian model of the court of Charlemagne, Mm. kings like Edward III especially, but also Richard II, Henry IV and so on held tournaments and jousts and it was possible at events like this for young knights to actually earn titles. Quite so. So, you know, you had war, diplomacy, trade, chivalric honour and lastly, people could become lords by marriage. (laughs) Lords are leaping into bed with noble ladies. (laughs) Well, sort of. Of course, marriage in the Middle Ages was normally quite a complex and political affair but by marrying the daughter of a lord, it was very possible to acquire part of those lands or estates, especially if the marriage produced male heirs. And it was super common for members of the gentry to intermarry in order to keep their estates together, expand territory, gain intergenerational wealth and climb the social ladder. Or leap up the social ladder. Well, precisely. Exactly. Okay, so the song could be talking about rapidly obtaining patronage Mm -hmm. of lords quickly acquiring power one way or another and leaping up the feudal hierarchy. But now I want to know about the dancing plague, come on. <laughs> Naturally, it's absolutely mad and relates to a well-observed phenomena in Europe between the 14th and 17th centuries, also known as choriomania, from the Greek choro, meaning dance, and mania, meaning madness, and as tarantism, because this dancing sickness was said to be like being bitten by the giant spider, the tarantula, as discovered at the Spanish port of Taranto, also given name to a type of dance known as the tarantella. So hold your horses, Mr. Vaux. Are you telling me that for a time, dancing was seen as a sickness? Well, compulsively having to dance was seen as a sickness. It was also known as St. Vitus's dance and believed to be a form of epilepsy in some quarters. But since historians and biologists have concluded that outbreaks of the dancing plague were actually a form of collective hysterical disorder or mass madness. I'm loving this. I mean, is the idea that whole communities were afflicted with the dancing plague? Oh, yeah. So the earliest recorded incident was in the 7th century, but it continued for 10 centuries with outbreaks all over Europe 
In the 11th century, for example, 18 peasants were afflicted on Christmas Eve, disturbing a church service. And in the 13th century, a huge group of children were afflicted in Thuringia in modern-day Germany, giving rise, many think, to the folktale of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And in 1518, there was an outbreak of dancing plague in Aachen, where 400 people ended up in a massive crowd, uncontrollably shaking it down. And this made people ill? Oh, yeah. People were said to enter a state of unconsciousness, unable to stop. Sometimes they stripped naked, sometimes garlanded themselves with flowers and bits of tree. It was common for them to laugh uncontrollably, to scream, cry, and often dance to physical exhaustion and sometimes death. I mean, this is sounding like quite intense fun. <laughs> Very. But I, I think you're joking. No! It, this cannot be real. No, it really was real. And there's other weird stuff, like people affected with the dancing plague reputedly couldn't see the colour red, and if repeatedly exposed to it, would enter violent fits. What? No! Yeah, look it up! People thought there were all sorts of causes, from demons to a curse from St Vitus to a regular old contagious disease. And this did happen in England, as well as in the rest of Europe for about a millennium before suddenly and mysteriously just disappearing. And the theory is that this was a form of cultural contagion or mass hysteria. Exactly that. Like other forms of mass hysteria, such as the witch trial outbreaks, the Tanganyika laughing epidemic, the great fear of 1789. There's loads of examples. But the dancing plague is one that lasted much longer than most. And though we don't really talk about it today, it could come back at any time. So watch out. Yeah, be careful at your Christmas parties, everyone. <laughs> you never know how powerful a particular needle drop might be. <laughs> right, well, these are mini episodes, so we'd best call it a day there. But we'll be back tomorrow with the next stage in our Three Ravens Advent 2023 journey when you're going to be talking about... Eleven ladies dancing. Yeah. Hopefully not because they're infected with the dancing plague, <laughs> although we can't rule it out. Smashing. Well, until then, while our lords have leapt off that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.